From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Well, ladies and gentlemen, despite perhaps appearances to the contrary, I have not actually had personal knowledge of the time frame we're talking about since I wasn't born until 1945. And we're going to talk about the first 10 years, which actually, um, for many of us, it was a time when we were schoolboys and seeing aviation grow up in a very exciting period. So I hope I am give some of that feel for that, for that particular period this evening. Now, this lecture was developed as part of a day's seminar which we had at the RAF Museum in October in 2011. And that was called the RAF in the Early Years of the Jet Era. Uh, and it was the Royal Air Force Historical Branches or Society's um, main event for that year. Now, that seminar included inputs from Captain Winkle Brown, Graham Pitchforth on the first jet aircraft uh, in the RAF squadron, and there was a pilot's view of testing the Vulcan and the an RF route flying of the first comet. And Dr. Hermani Gifford gave a synopsis of her PhD thesis on the world's first jet engines and the pursuit of innovation between 1936 and 1945. And I was put in that seminar activity to introduce some engineering supply activities into this because it all got a bit too... Um, flying orientated for one reason or another. So, and I had a reasonable pedigree to do so since I'd been looking after, at some stages in my time in the Air Force, uh, engineering policy in the Royal Air Force, both in Logistics Command and, uh, and at Strike Command as well. So, so I had a little bit of background in, in this. So I put together this particular activity um, and the more I got into it, the more I found it more interesting as far as uh, understanding where the issues actually lay and it, it, and it really ends up and I hope when the time we've actually finished you'll realise that there was a great deal done in this period but much of it was actually on solid foundations of um, the Royal Air Force's engineering practices which allowed us to bring in these aeroplanes and start that jet era without too much excitement. So although the jet engine represented a major breakthrough in aircraft propulsion, and it opened up a substantial increase in aircraft speed and altitude performance, its introduction to RF service was remarkably smooth from an engineering and supply perspective, with the related challenges being progressively resolved during the first decade of introduction. In general terms for any Air Force, the engineering and supply issues of an in-service fleet are a function of their quantity in use as defined by the fleet size and each type's intrinsic reliability and maintainability characteristics. Now, when jet aircraft were introduced into the Royal Air Force in the first decade following the Second World War, they were funded, because of governmental financial constraints, only for a slow build-up in relation to a steeply reducing piston engine inventory, and the few RAF jet types produced were small fighters, which were being designed with sound engineering judgment and recent operational experience. The result was there were relatively few issues requiring radical in-service engineering or supply solutions to be deployed. For the Royal Air Force, any changes in supporting process or procedure from that of piston engine types that did occur derived from one of three reasons. That's the nature of the jet engine itself, the higher all-round performance of jet aircraft, 
and the greater depth of technological skill required in the maintenance and supply organisation. So higher all-round performance and the organisation itself. So when you're looking at these three aspects, I will go through each of those particular categories in turn. And of course the two aeroplanes we're talking about there, and to an sophisticated audience such as yourselves, you'll recognise the Vampire and the, and the Meteor, which is what predominantly was the, uh, the aeroplanes for this particular period. I showed a picture of those two aeroplanes earlier. I decided I wasn't going to give you a history of vampires and meteors because I'm sure you don't actually need it. But trying to, to work out exactly what were the issues actually were, I put them into those three categories. The jet engine, the fact that the aeroplanes actually flew higher with a greater all-round performance and how to organise yourself on the ground. And really, you need to look at how aeroplanes were built how they built up in this particular period. And for an understanding of that, I had to actually go to the Air Ministry monthly effective strength statistics for all types and commands at home and overseas. And that meant going to the archives at Kew and getting the ledgers out. And goodness me, I've never seen anything quite like it um, after dealing with spreadsheets um, with Microsoft Office to see the ledgers that were produced uh, from 1945 onwards. And before that, for large numbers of aeroplanes, and you'll see you know, the Royal Air Force ended up with nearly 56,000 aeroplanes at the end of the end of the war. And if you start counting from sort of September 45 onwards, you're looking to record every one of those aeroplanes somewhere um, on, on a great ledger. Um, and there weren't any synopses of these things. Um, perhaps you might have seen what was in Middle East Command or Far East Command or whatever, but the reality was they were probably 50-sheeted ledgers quite large, and that was quite a, quite a daunting task. Fortunately, I was only looking for jet aeroplanes or jet aircraft, um, so I could actually discard all the, all the rest as it happened. And as we've just been saying, Meteor and Vampire were, were predominant. So we had aeroplanes coming in from July 1944, and if you actually counted those statistics, there were actually 22 Meteors operating compared with nearly 56,000 RF aircraft of all types. So the inventory is absolutely dominated, dominated by piston engine types, with just these few RAF jets actually kicking around. So those, um, that 10-year period actually that followed was about those way those jets actually started to make their toll into the overall RAF inventory. Um, there were dominantly those two aircraft types, the Meteor with the Rolls-Royce's Welland and the Derwent, uh, and then the Vampire with its own single-engine de Havilland Goblin. There were a total of 362 meteors and vampires in late 1946, and they'd reached 1,409 by 1950, but it still represented only 15.7% of the RAF total's effective strength. And in 1951, the combined fleet of meteors and vampires was 2,257, and they were joined by the first new types with two Venoms, 12 Cambras, the latter type, of course, as we know, was the sort of jet, jet mosquito, was uh, the holy grail for the Royal Air Force at the time. By 1953, there were 1,971 meteors, 1,147 vampires, 162 venoms, 249 cambras, plus 293 Canadair CL-13 Sabres, which had arrived via the US-funded Mutual Defence Assistance Programme as a stopgap against the uh, swept wing fighter jet requirement as part of the RAF expansion in response to the Korean War, when we'd had problems with the delivery of Hunter and Swift aircraft. 
Thereafter, the initial javelins, some early valiants, and the first few jet provis arrived, but in numbers insufficient to register visually near the end of any chart, showing the chronology of the build-up of effective strength in the first decade of RAF jet aircraft introduction. So that's actually the original graph, which produced from these statistics, um, and it is again, it's dominated by meteor and vampire, as we can actually see, with just a few aeroplanes actually in, uh, in to make it. However, that didn't stop the Air Force actually wishing, and if you looked in 1953, the uh, correlation review on the 15th of July at RAF Odium, that involved 640 aeroplanes with 440 jets, and the first prototype victory. Victor, the second prototype Valiant, the first prototype Vulcan, the third prototype Javelin, first production Hunter, and a flight of Swifts. In reality, two years later in 1955, the total jet aircraft in the Royal Air Force effective strength was 482, comprising 1,548 meteors, 1,238 vampires, 578 venoms, 461 Canberras, 361 Sabres, 23 Swifts, 488 Hunters, 32 Valiants, 3 Javelins and 2 Jet Provis. When you do the figures, you find we've actually got over halfway. By 1955, you've actually got somewhere to that aspiration of getting yourself to a multi-role jet air force. Clearly, though, there remained in the inventory plenty of piston engine types, and some recently introduced, such as the Shackleton, the Neptune, the Hastings, the Varsity, the Piston Provis, and, of course, various helicopters. And they balanced the jet engine's particular support needs from an engineering and supplies perspective. By the mid-50s, the RF was getting closer to its aim of a multi-role combat force full of jets. These had inevitably posed some particular issues, but although the jet engine was a discontinuity in propulsion technology, its overall introduction in the previous 10 years was a progressive ramp-up with an orderly, realistic expansion of the aircraft roles, which allowed the engineering supply issues to be managed. So let's have a look at the, that jet engine itself, which, as you remember, we were looking at the three categories that the aeroplanes actually were um, managed by engineering supply so in contrast to a jet piston engine, a jet engine ran on a new type of fuel. It required a different form of starting. It invariably constrained the airframe designer to configure the air aircraft and its systems in a specific manner. But most importantly, because of its relative infancy, the jet engine was a more reliable and maintainable source of motive power. Now, at the time of jet engine development, piston aero engines in general were approaching their ultimate potential and were becoming increasingly complex in order to deliver relatively small improvements in performance. Their technology had probably reached an extremity of the envelope and complexity was overwhelming maturity. From a maintenance point of view, you can see we're going to talk about centrifugal and axial flow compressors and, and jet engines, and I really don't want to go through this in detail for an audience as sophisticated as yourselves, but just to remember that we are talking about really solid uh, impellers uh, associated with the compressors of the centrifugal engine. Uh, the axial uh, engine, of course, actually small blades. Um, and I show the Jumo because at the time I gave this lecture, uh, Marley Giffold was actually looking hard at the relationship between the Whittle engines uh, and, uh, and the German Jumo engines and the way that the production actually went. And you will know that Jumo engines were produced in, in orders of magnitude greater than the Whittle engines during the Second World War. 
So we just have a, 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 that slide just there to remind ourselves about solid impellers, flow paths of, uh, of, of hot gases inside the engine uh, with the centrifugal uh, jet engine there compared with what we actually might have achieved with the axial. Going back then to the uh, question of comparing piston engines with the jet engine, from a maintenance point of view, the period inspection of a piston engine involved considerable work on the air screw, the constant speed unit, the exhaust manifold, the magnetos, carburetor controls, cowling gills and controls, engine and air screw controls. Now, with the exception of the engine controls, the jet engine had none of these components and only a few high velocity rubbing surfaces such as pistons. But there are a large number of hot surfaces. So there are items in the jet engine requiring inspection, such as the combustion chambers and flame tubes, and burners as well as the compressor and turbine. Fortuitously, the jet engine had a relatively small number of moving parts to become warm, and vibration due to rotational forces was relatively low. Additionally, there were only a few adjustments that were possible, and these were principally in the fuel supply system, temperature sensing and instrumentation. However, suitable checks were relatively straightforward, with the turbine area as an example, oral observations as engine evolution slowed and closed down, and then visual checks taking only a short time with simple clearance confirmations of the blade tips. And to quote contemporary experience, the average time to do a, DI, a daily inspection on a reciprocating engine power plant could take an experienced crew three and a half man hours, whereas a DI on a Derwent installed in a Meteor produced an 83% saving on this figure. Additionally, it was noted that it was quicker to change a jet engine than to rectify any major problems in situ. And time study investigations of engine changes revealed there was a significant saving in labor costs compared to a piston engine. For the Meteor, an engine change consumed 48 man hours, which compared most favorably with the Tempest, which took 105 man hours, or 75 man hours if the engine was pre-dressed. So Frank Whittle recorded that a feature of his Whittle W2 and W2B design was the very simple engine mounting and that it was intended from the first that the engine change should be a straightforward operation. Jet engine systems were also relatively robust and the installed life of these early engines was by 1946 being considered to be up to 180 hours with predictions that could soon reach 1,000 flying hours without difficulty soon. Deeper inspections such as on the Derwent 5 were scheduled at 50 flying hour intervals for miners until a major at 200 flying hours. The Goblin went quite rapidly up to a time between overhaul of 600 hours in 1949, but with an immediate combustion, intermediate combustion chamber change at 300 hours. So overall, in general terms, from an engineering perspective, the early jet engines were welcomed by their Royal Air Force support crews for their relative simplicity, robustness, and their potential savings from improved maintainability. So for the Royal Air Force in the first half of the decade, there were 100% was either Meteor or Vampire until about 1950. 96% was still Vampires and Meteors in 1952, and only by 55 had this balance fallen to just about 60%, principally with the introduction of the Sabre and the Canberra. And until the first axial flow engines of the Sabre's General Electric J47 turbojet and the Rolls-Royce Avon to be used on the Canberra Hunter and other second-generation jet aircraft came into service, 
The early inventory introductory period was dominated by the engineering and supply characteristics of the centrifugal Derwent and the Goblin engines of various marks. The Derwent, with its single-stage dual-entry two-sided impeller, was based on the Whittle W2, which became the Rolls-Royce W2B23C. Then the RB23 Welland, and this type powered the Meteors in the initial introductory decade, and owed much to Sir Frank's pioneering work in his designs. The Derwent 5, while retaining the double-sided impeller, was significantly modified with a Rolls-Royce diffuser and straight-through combustion chambers and was at 85% scale down of the Neen to the same volume envelope of the Derwent 1 to power effectively the Meteor F4 and its onward marks. The de Havilland Goblin in the Vampire was designed by Major Frank Bernard Halford, who when first approached was much in ignorance of Whittle's work. But the de Havilland team were immediately given the full cooperation of all concerned at Power Jets, the Royal Aircraft Establishment and at Gloucester's, and were able to start work with a full understanding of what had been achieved. Whilst the design of the Goblin single-sided compressor, bifurcated intake, long tubular drive shaft with improved combustion flow differed fundamentally from Whittle's engine, it is possible that much of his aerodynamic design went into the compressor and turbine. It's interesting to learn that unlike Brisson, in Germany there was an engine test chamber in Munich, and when it was captured intact in May 1945, Plans were rapidly made to test the British jets inside it, and the first Goblin ran there in August. After the first runs, the German technicians asked if they should open up the cell so the engine could be inspected. The de Havilland team declined and started the next tests. After these, the Germans asked again because they'd never met a jet engine which could run for more than five hours without something being replaced. That the Goblin ran, simulating altitudes of up to 43,000 feet, for 42 hours in that cell without any need of maintenance. That was a simple configuration, the availability of good materials such as nickel, and a sound design by a small experienced team in Britain had achieved much in terms of longevity in comparison to the German jet engine program. In fact, because the de Havilland turbojets were so reliable, one of the dubious results was they were given no means of airborne relight during a flameout. In due course, the operational confidence in these early British designs is well illustrated by the first east-west jet crossing of North Atlantic flying via Iceland and Greenland by six RF Vampire F3s on the 14th of July, 1948. Now, overall, the reliability and maintainability of the early jet engines and RF use was extraordinarily good, with no endemic technical problems evident. And this I would attribute in no small part to the influence in every part of their design by Sir Frank Whittle. He was personally well-trained with significant practical hands-on experience of operational requirements of the service. His RF apprenticeship as an aircraft mechanic in the new trade of rigor for metal aircraft was followed by flying training at Cranwell and on operational tours including test flying at the Marine Aircraft Experimental Establishments at Felixstowe and the role of station armed officer. His R education included the officer's engineering course at the Home Aircraft Depot at Henlow, with a small six-month interlude as the officer I see the aero engine test benches there in the engine repair section, pending his posting to Peterhouse College, Cambridge, which resulted in a mechanical science tripos with first-class honours in 1936. He subsequently noted that he'd been trained to think as an aeronautical engineer 
in terms of very low weight and great precision, and his experience had given him a clear picture of the special problems of an aircraft power plant. He also said that he saw these things through the eyes of a pilot as well as through the eyes of an engineer. All this personal experience was fed into every aspect of the Whittle engine design, which, together with a power jets team comprising of strong service associations, including service airmen on detachment, resulted in a very robust and maintainable product. This sound foundation for engine design was in turn liberally dispensed to the other contractors engaged by the Air Ministry for Volume Production, further evolved by Sir Stanley Hooker at Rolls-Royce and developed by de Havilland in their own independent jet engine. Now, as Sir Frank's direct role in manufacture diminished, he was appointed the technical advisor on engine design and production to the controller of supplies in June 1946. And on balance, it's fair to deduct that the relatively smooth introduction of jet engines to the Royal Air Force from a supporting engineering and supplies perspective can be attributed to the extraordinary talents of our most accomplished engineering officer, Sir Frank Whittle, who in a pivotal role had embedded an intrinsic understanding of the requirements at all levels of utility of his invention to the subsequent benefit to all those who flew or supported his engineering designs. However, jet engines did require a new form of fuel, and their main drawback was that they were relatively inefficient, especially at lower altitudes. And there was one senior Royal Air Force officer who was allowed to fly the experimental Whittle E 2839. He remarked that it was the first aircraft he'd ever flown where you could actually see the fuel gauge moving down whilst the engine was running. And as far as the early Gloucester Whittle aircraft operations were concerned, it required a Lancaster bomber fitted with a large tank of kerosene to accompany it wherever it went because there were few airfields with a supply of aviation kerosene. Therefore, for an RAF wanting to introduce extensive jet operations, their fuel availability problem needed to be addressed as an urgent supply issue. So apart from the requirements of bulk storage and volume distribution of a fuel with markedly different characteristics from petrol, there was an early decision required on the standard of jet fuel to be specified, as well as the calorific value and specific gravity defining the fuel load, properties affecting pumpability, such as viscosity, deposition of water, corrosion, vapor locking, and high temperature degradation, and fire hazard need to be considered. <clears throat> now, soon after the first flight of the Meteor F1 in 43, the Ministry of Aircraft Production issued an RDE describing conventional lamp burning kerosene with a minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit freezing point. The next year, as a DRD 2482 was based on domestic lighting and heating kerosene and became the first of a series of improving narrow cut, that's Avtur fuel specifications. However, only 6% of a barrel of crude oil could be used for Avtur, and a wide cut alternative produced at a rate of 30% convertibility was developed. This we called AVTAG, and by 1951, a wide-cut kerosene specification, DRD 2486, was issued to cover this and fuel similar in the US, which we called JP4. But AVTAG in trials showed some problems of vaporization, requiring pressurized tanks, lower calorific value reducing range, and issues of speed governing of the engine near max RPM. Additionally, it was shown that narrow-cut kerosene, Avtur, was generally speaking a safer fuel than wide-cut Avtag JP4 in all aspects of operation, crash landing and fueling. 
And the debate of the relative use of AVTOUR and its aircraft carrier equivalent of AVCAT and the crude oil efficient but more widely available AVTAG, both almost 100% technically satisfactory, continued well past the first decade of jets. However, safety considerations did take precedence to favour the use of AVTOUR in the Royal Air Force, along with selected additional uh, products of uh, fuel system in icing inhibitors to be used to prevent the formation of ice in the fuel and to reduce the chances of fungal growth. This practical operating experience and then an internal reorganisation in the MOD resulted in the RAF effectively becoming the custodian of the defence standard for jet aviation fuel and setting worldwide jet fuel standards based on defence standard 9191. As far as jet engine lubrication was concerned, most early jets were lubricated from 1944 onwards with existing petroleum suitable oils and those, such as those of specification DDT44D. However, for the higher internal temperature limits and lower ambient starting temperatures involved, it was clear that special lubricants would be necessary to meet the internal demand of the higher power jet engines. In 1947-48, work began on synthetic lubricants, SO lubricant EEL3 and SO Aviation Turbine Oil 35 was a blend of high viscosity complex esters. The result in 1949 was the issue of DNGRD2487 as the basis of synthetic oil lubricants. And in due course, the Royal Air Force managed these lubricant specifications. And apart from occasional overheating of the plane bearing on the early Welland engines, the fact that there were fewer jet engine bearing or lubrication-related failures reported in service testifies to the quality and suitability of the oils that were employed. But there were differences, of course, actually, in the way you handle jet aeroplanes as well we needed to contend with. Jet aircraft, of course, to ensure that air intakes were not blanked at low speeds and to minimise any scorching damage on the runway from jet e-flux. Jet engines were designed, aircraft were designed with a nose wheel undercarriage. Furthermore, because the jet engine offered no air screw slipstream over the tail surfaces, it was necessary to make the nose wheel steerable. This combined not only to provide excellent visibility and manoeuvrability to the pilot on the ground, it also offered major advantages to ground handling on the flight line and in the hangar too. Nose wheel towing was much safer with positive directional control by the tractor driver through a tow bar attached directly to the built-in points on the wheel. Uh, and there were, then this was strengthened to allow the tractors to push the aircraft rearwards as well. For lighter aircraft, the Land Rover proved a useful towing vehicle and flight personnel were able to qualify for, for driving licenses to do this, and thus saying the establishment of MT drivers of the specialist tractor, which was a useful aspect of the enforced economies of the post-war years. When you start a jet engine, you need to spin it up to about 40% of the maximum revolutions in order to provide sufficient volume of air for self-sustained running and to allow fuel to ignite without the risk of over-temperature in the combustion chambers and turbine. For electrical starting, the number of batteries required is greater than the equivalent piston engine and their charge needed to be maintained. On an overseas flight line, this did present significant problems from high ambient temperatures when overheating of batteries in trolley accumulators could and frequently did occur. New starters to supersede the trolley accumulators were developed, first known as ground power units and later as electrical servicing and starter trolleys. Before they came into almost universal use, 
The cartridge start had a brief period in use, as did Athpin, which was the service name for isopropyl nitrate, IPN, which was a highly volatile liquid to feed a starter system with blazing gases from, a, from which a prudent starter crew sheltered behind the hoochin. Additionally, pooling of fuel from leaks into the jet pipe to, could be ignited on first startup, also produced some spectacular sights requiring anticipation by attendant fire crews to add to the flight line issues. And as well as those hazards, those hazards of starting, check, check aircraft presented further new issues. There's the obvious ones of the hot gases, and there was a pervasive and distinctive noise of the jet engine turbine, which could easily result in high tone deafness from prolonged exposure. Ear guards and defenders became regular features of the RAF flight line attire from the early days, especially against the high-pitched scream of the goblin. And one-piece one boiler suits were recommended as ideal clothing for personnel to mitigate any suction hazards. Now, this was highlighted in service by citing the first ground ingestion incident. This occurred in January 1943, when Michael Daunt, Gloucester's chief test pilot, was standing looking into the port nacelle for fuel leaks of the H1-engined Meteor F2 prototype when the engine speeded up and he was swept off his feet and sucked headfirst into the intake. The throttle was hastily chopped and Dort, allegedly not a small man, was badly bruised but otherwise unharmed. Thereafter, ground running guards were known as anti-Daunts. Now, lesser-sized articles were sucked up from the ground during ground running and taxiing, but they weren't generally a problem to the robust impellers of the early centrifugal compressors of jet engines. As axial flow compressors became prevalent at the end of the decade, a whole new area of awareness and discipline around the flight lines and hangars became a major issue. These problems were mitigated through anti-foreign object damage FOD campaigns, comprising FOD warts with hand-picking up and down of loose items through, through elaborate runway sweeping practices with sophisticated brush, brushes and magnetic bars. Additionally, with the maintenance areas, there were significant improvements in the engineering and supply practices of tool issue and control to minimise the loose article hazard potential. Designers have also had to ensure that the armament installation on aircraft caused no adverse effects on the engine and airframe by damage from ejected cartridge cases and ensuring clean separation of stores, particularly rocket-powered weapons. This was really no different for the newer jet engines, apart from the additional need to minimise the ingestion of gases into the intake to avoid surging and flame-out. This was not a particular issue with the early centrifugal flow jet-engined aircraft, but the Hunter, with its axial flow compressor of the early Series Avon RA-7 Mark 115 jet engine, was a significant risk of surge when its 30mm Aden cannons were fired at high altitude. A partial redesign of the intake was required for the 157th Hunter onwards, plus a modified Avon Mark 121, with an instantaneous minor interruption in engine fuel flow on firing, known as gun dip, to avoid over-temperatures in the combustion chambers when the supply of air was diluted by weapon-propellant gases. The Hunter F4 was also the first variant to be fitted with an ammunition link container under the nose to minimise the chance of them being sucked into the intakes during gun firing. Now, most jet aircraft were designed to fly higher and faster than their piston engine predecessors. This meant aircraft systems and aircrew protection improvements were required, which needed revised and expanded in-service technical and supply support. In the early jets, mach meters had been introduced, 
and there were many improvements in the sensitivity of aircraft instruments to counteract with their inherent lag in true indication and the limitations of pressure-driven instruments at altitude. Likely prolonged exposure to the cold and reduced pressures at higher altitude also meant that electrical equipment fitted needed to be better insulated. Trials at high altitude on the Meteor F4 by the Central Fighter Establishment showed that a greater tendency to unserviceability with pressurisation, hydraulics and instrument systems problems. Flying control systems using hydraulic servo-assisted powered flaps, die brakes and flying controls to keep the aerodynamic forces manageable by the pilot became commonplace with second generation fighters. In due course, the improvements in manoeuvring performance and low-level operations at speed meant that the G-loadings on an airframe required recording, both to ensure that overstressing had not occurred in the short term, but after the analysis of the comet failures, to also to estimate the build-up of fatigue damage on the airframe. These issues, in turn, meant additional activities on the flight line and expanded second-line engineering hydraulic bays and the electrical instrument sections of the jet aircraft operating units, with tradesmen becoming more specialised in particular equipments with each of the aircraft system categories. Air Ministry specification F4 of 40 for a high-altitude fighter aircraft raised serious considerations of pressurisation and crew aircrew protection by designers in 1940. There were four marks of Spitfire that had a cabin as a result of work between the RAE Supermarine during 1940 and 41. And though it never reached squadron service, the Westland Welkin had a cabin that had been directed to be designed in collaboration with Gloucesters. However, pressure cabins were not commonplace in the Royal Air Force Service. And although the 51st production Vampire onwards had one, this was not the case for the early Meteor aircraft. However, a lot of high altitude test work was carried out with Meteor F4s by the Aircraft Armament and Experimental Establishment at Boscombe Down during 1947-48, with the result that pilots sustained only by oxygen and pressure waistcoats reached 15,000 metres, 50,000 feet, notwithstanding that in general service use, pilots were not permitted to fly above 35,000 feet and then for no more than 10 minutes. Now, this was a serious operational limitation to properly utilise the intrinsic performance of jet aircraft and the general use of aircraft pressurisation, cockpit pressurisation, albeit to the possible detriment of engine compressor and fuel efficiency from air bleeds, was necessary. Additionally, improving aircrew flying clothing, which included the use of G-suits, and the delivery of oxygen under pressure was essential. This standard of personal support was progressively introduced with the later marks of Meteor, with a fully operational pressurised cockpit with air being bled from the engine compressor casings, and as original fit on the newer jet aircraft, such as the Canberra, which had a pressure cabin designed by Teddy Petter, who had been Westland's technical director at the time of the Welkin, and had subsequently joined English Electric in early 1945. Overall, this need for a pressure cabin had to be a common feature of jet aircraft operation, and the maintenance required extensive ground-based integrity checks by the airframe trades with new specialised skill sets covering aircrew, flying clothing, issue fitting, and the maintenance evolved in service. Just a quick synopsis of those aircraft system issues. Which moves us on to the aircraft aircrew assisted escape systems. <clears throat> now before ejection seats bailing out from the early vampire aircraft was considered problematic. 
And there was only one known successful bailout from a meteor without an ejection seat. And well before this time, as jet aircraft speeds had built up, it had become obvious that an automated and practical means of emergency escape was essential. And despite the outstanding work on design started in 1944 by the Martin Baker aircraft and subsequent the successful dummy and live ejections in 46, it was not until June 1947 that there was a decision to fit Martin Baker seats to all British military aircraft. This was because the air staff were at first reluctant to show support because almost without exception, the aircraft manufacturers claimed that the ejection seat could not be fitted without major structural alterations in the cockpit area. And there were also some exaggerated claims of costs and disruption to aircraft availability schedules from the necessary modifications. Additionally, some pilots were reported as saying they were reluctant to fly with an explosive cartridge attached to their seats. However, by February 1948, there was a rig erected at RF Chivener for training for the whole process. The Mark I seat was introduced in various versions and was fitted to the Meteor, Camera, Venom and Hunter. And this was successful on over 50 occasions. However, a significant portion of ejections did not did prove fatal because these early seats did little more than lift a pilot clear of the cockpit. Thereafter, pilots still needed to free themselves from the seat and a fully automatic sequence of initiation to a developed parachute was required. The solution was a Mark II automatic seat with scissors, shackle and clockwork time release unit, plus other improved features becoming standard. There was also a retrospective program on which Mark I seats were modified to the Mark II standard, approved in August 1953. Soon after, further improvements followed to supersede the less than wholly effective thigh guards on the earlier seats with positive leg restraints on the Mark III seat to prevent legs from hitting the instrument panel and then flailing on ingress from the aircraft. Additionally, this seat was fitted with an 80-foot-per-second telescopic ejection gun necessary to clear the high towers of the Javelin and the V-Force. During this whole period, there were new disciplines required between air and ground crews on the flight line concerning the management of ejection seat pins. Additionally, ejection seats with their explosive cartridges required new engineering procedures in the hangar for the storage of seats and the rules for working on cockpits with live seats still fitted. Crash recovery aspects needed consideration and training for any individuals who might be employed in any rescue services. The armoured engineering trades were expanded to take on the specialist work of seat removal and fitting and with in-depth maintenance of the intricate timing devices and seat structure being provided alongside the additional weapons in the armament and gun bays on RAF stations. These armourers worked closely with the evolving trades of safety equipment specialists because of the intimate parachute, oxygen, G-suit and flying clothing interfaces on their equipment. A higher standard of cleanliness was deemed necessary in ejection seat bays and specialist procedures of quality control and independent supervision were also introduced to protect against maintenance failures in this vital task. It was also not surprising to find air crew visiting the armoury and taking a welcomed close interest in the overall working arrangements in these areas too. Now, compared to what has come later, the early jet aircraft were relatively underpowered, with the Meteor requiring two engines, a, a Derwent one, for example, gave 1,640 pounds of static thrust, and the smaller Vampire faring better with its single Goblin one producing 2,700 pounds of thrust. To obtain the higher predicted performance from these aircraft designs required a reduction in parasitic drag, thinner wings, and a cleaner profile for the airframe itself. On the other hand, in-service operational aircraft need frequent and time 
efficient replenishment of fuels, oils, oxygen, as well as expended stores, usually in enhanced environmental conditions. A good designer with in-service feedback would take care in this detail and, for example, configure replenishment and servicing access points to return flush to the aerodynamic surfaces after prolonged in-service use. However, this idea was not always achieved, and from early days of the introduction of jet aircraft, airframe and related trades on the flight lines need to become more fully aware of the issues of reduced tolerances in aircraft surface finish and the skin structures, which could potentially degrade the boundaries of operational performance envelope of these newer times. As I've pointed out already, the number of jet aircraft in service during the decade was a very relatively a low percentage of the whole Royal Air Force infantry. It was dominated by the demands of the more numerous piston engine types. Fleet management issues were affected by attrition rates. But the early jet engine fleet were in line with the peacetime rates of comparable piston engine fighters. In 1950, the annual Category 5 write-off rate for all causes as a percentage of effective strength for the Spitfire was 6.2%. But between 1947 and 53, the equivalent rate for the new jet aircraft straddled this figure, with the Meteor fleet averaging just over 7% and the Vampire fleet a smaller 5.6%. To get those figures, again, I had to go through the aircraft stats to actually see what the write-off rates, and some of the write-offs, of course, actually not necessarily from crashes, they are not aircraft, airborne crashes necessarily. Uh, but the attrition rate is what the engineers and supply organisation actually needs to used to actually buy replacement aeroplanes. Um, and um, those losses of 515 uh, meteors and 317 vampires in the seven years did bite into a reducing overall financial budget for the Royal Air Force in order to restore those strengths to establishment. And this had a consequential effect into ranging and scaling on each fleet's supply and spares, even though in the period of Meteor F4 cost £30,000 and a Vampire 5 only £22,000 about £700,000 equivalent and £500,000 equivalent in today's money. For in-service maintenance costs, contemporary reports and open literature show that the overall ratification man-hours per thousand flying hours of a piston-engine day fighter was the order of 1,200, with the majority of efforts split evenly between airframe and engine trades. In contrast, a jet-engine day fighter consumed three times that amount with around 3,700 man-hours per 1,000 flying hours, with two-thirds of that extra effort in airframe trades and a significant increase in electrical instrumentation rectification. These increased demands on manpower in a period of drawdown required improvements in plan flying and servicing with aircraft pooled to smooth expected fluctuations in opportunity in embryonic arrangements for centralised servicing were developed. The Air Ministry Scheduled Servicing Development Unit at Watersham which had been formed from the Air Ministry Manpower Research Unit in the end of 1944, played a leading role in the scientific approach to aircraft maintenance, especially for the new generation of jet aircraft. This unit proved, provided sound practical guidance and innovative techniques to both the manufacturer's design teams and to the RF tradesmen at all depths of maintenance. And concerning those tradesmen, it wasn't until 1948 that a trade structure committee was formed for reasons which included the increased complexity of the aircraft and ancillary equipment, and it was neither practical nor economical for one person to be trained to look after all aspects of aircraft maintenance. And aircraft maintenance now called for teams of specialists backed by highly skilled individuals. 
Up to this stage, and for a considerable time earlier, there have been 100 or so RAF trades classified into four pay groups, A, B, C, and D, with Group A carrying the highest rates. While these overloaded trade groups were thought quite suitable for the propeller aircraft and the very early jets, they were considered now inadequate with lengthy initial training courses covering too wide a field, resulting in significant training overheads and high wastage rates. The skills required were insufficient for the specialist engineering areas uh, required to support the more sophisticated aircraft entering and plan for service. Overall, a new trade structure was required to produce tradesmen better adapted and trained for the intended jet-orientated air force. And the committee's proposal to remedy these deficiencies came in the 1951 Command Technical Scheme for 22 compact trade groups, leading off for aircraft support with aircraft engineering, radio engineering, armament engineering, electrical instrument engineering, and general engineering. Each of these trade groups comprise of a variety of jobs ranging from the completely unskilled through semi-skilled to skilled and advanced trades. Each covered the whole range of pay. The new scheme controversially separated the command and technical pathways to future promotion, and this was visible through the use of inverted chevrons on uniforms for the first time. Beneficial revisions were made to this structure uh, again in 1955 after complaints received from in-service tradesmen, but the overall trade structure philosophy lasted until the next revision in 1964, at which time the jet age had truly arrived in the Royal Air Force. So to conclude then, the advent of the jet engine into regular Royal Air Force service was probably the greatest single advance in the operational aircraft inventory for the, for the Royal Air Force. It transformed aircraft performance in the air and gave rise to new procedures on the ground. However, given such an advance, it might have been expected to have spawned many difficult problems in the first 10 years, which needed to be tackled from an engineering supply perspective, before jet engine aircraft could become a practical and well-supported operational weapon system. So I've tried to demonstrate these issues turned out to be all manageable against the background of support of the existing piston engine types and the progressive build-up of jet aircraft, which was dominated for the whole period by the Jost Meteor and de Havilland Vampire. These technical challenges represented in service were much more related to the higher speeds and altitudes that these aircraft and their more sophisticated second-generation successors could achieve with their existing complexity of associated operation equipment. Issues of a new type of fuel, lubricants, flight line hazards and handling, aircraft support and aircrew survival systems, trade skills and technical organisation did arise with some useful organisational byproducts, but all were resolved with manageable engineering and supply solutions. Furthermore, as far as the jet engine itself was concerned, the early centrifugal compressor models in the vast majority of jet aircraft in the first period proved to be remarkably reliable and trouble-free with significant benefits from their simplicity in terms of maintainability. I believe this was due to no small part to the extraordinary talents of our most accomplished engineering officer, Sir Frank Whittle, whose service background and understanding of the practical needs of the operational air force influenced his invention's development fundamentally. Overall then, the relatively few in-service engineering and supply issues brought it into play by the introduction of jet aircraft meant by the end of the first decade the Royal Air Force was well placed in support arrangements to achieve its plans, accelerated by increasing concerns of the Cold War and of an expanded multi-role multi force of jet-powered aircraft. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. That uh, concludes my formal presentation. I'm very happy to uh, join Peter and ask, answer any questions.
from across the globe. From the center of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.